This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to The Common Good. This program aims to build resilience in the community across three sectors, public, profit, and not-for-profit. We asked the question, what practical steps can we take in this post-COVID-19 era to become resilient? Welcome to The Common Good. Folks, this is the last episode of The Common Good. And in this episode, I'm going to be playing the best interviews I've had so far in the series. And uh, hopefully, maybe next year, I might continue doing this um, series again. Who knows? Uh, But sit back and enjoy this um, best of um, the interviews that I've recorded over the past year. Thanks. What was the um, driving force, basically, to learn, you know, different language and especially, you know, what is it that attracted you to Asia, like, you know, how you learn Japanese and, mm. and then Mandarin and also you wanted to be in Asia? What, what, what sort of um, experience or what, what actually made you to, um, to go into Asia? Asian countries. Yeah, I've thought a lot about that. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, your, your family environment and the influence of your parents is, is mm-hmm. really key. When I was 10, um, I had the opportunity to travel with my family to Singapore. Oh, okay. And it was just for a few days. But yeah. if I really think hard, I can still remember the, the smells uh-huh. and the sounds and, and the yeah. heat. And it was all just so exciting for a wee kid oh, from Christchurch I that um, maybe something lodged there. Mm-hmm. A bit later on in life, um, we hosted exchange students from Japan and oh, my see. babysitters tended to be <laughs> Malaysian students. I don't okay. know quite how my parents <laughs> connected with them, but um, yeah. I, I guess all the way through my upbringing, um, my parents had a, a very welcoming and, and open approach to different cultures and, and different people. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I, think, I guess the final thing really that sealed my fate was uh, my, my mother was teaching English to Japanese students um, when okay. I got to university. And I was asked to coach the, the volleyball team for that language school and, and oh, you know, connected okay. with Japanese yeah. students at that point. So I guess, um, yeah, so just, many points. yeah, just random points of, of connection and, <laughs> right. and quite how they all fit together, I'm, I'm not sure. I see. Tell us a little bit about your family. You, you're married? Sure. And... Yeah. Yes, so that's well, uh, you know, that's the Asia connection continuing. <laughs> so uh, during during my postings in Asia, I met and eventually married my wife Wan, uh, who's uh-huh. from Thailand, nice. uh, and we have one daughter um, who was born in Wellington. She's actually the only real Kiwi in the family, <laughs> okay. but uh, then grew up in all these different places that I've mentioned. Okay. So, yeah, that's introduced another really um, interesting um, viewpoint for me into mm-hmm. uh, Asian culture in particular, because it's one thing to be yeah. working uh, <laughs> and a quite another thing to be married into the culture <laughs> into and, the and, culture. and yeah, to live yeah. the culture daily at home. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's us. Um, and so this is Juan's first time these last two years living back in New Zealand, um, uh-huh. really, since since about 2006. Oh, wow. That's nice. Mm. So so this is the first time she's been back for such a long period? Yes. I mean, your daughter. <clears throat> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. both of yeah. them um, were quite comfortable, I think, living in various places around uh-huh. the world. And it was yeah. really my driving feeling in the end to, to come home oh. that the time was right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, there, obviously there was some culture shock for the family, but the, uh, yeah. I think we've all adapted pretty well. It's it's a great place to live. Oh, that's great. It's good to see uh, that she's enjoying her time here now and probably glad that uh, she's here with COVID-free country and, you know, being able to easily move around. Yes, I think um, for the most part, I think we all feel incredibly thankful and blessed that we are where we are. It's, a, it's obviously a fantastic um, place to shelter from, from yeah. the pandemic. On the other hand, as you'll know, you know, being compulsory mm. separated from your family, in, oh, yes. in our case, family in Thailand, mm. um, has been pretty hard, especially now that the second year is starting and we're, mm. we still don't know when it's really going to be easy to travel. So True. I'd say 90% 
um, happy and mm-hmm. 10% uh, homesick yeah. and, yes. and all of those emotions. Absolutely. Yeah, mm. yeah. It's hard to be away from the family, I can I can tell you that. <laughs> mm. Yeah, exactly. Now, um, you've been working for Asia NZ Foundation since January of 2020. Um, give us a brief about, you know, what this organization is all about and um, and your work particularly. Sure. So the Asia New Zealand Foundation was set up um, in 1994, and we're, we're almost totally government funded, mm-hmm. and we were established by the government. Oh, uh, and the, the context um, was that in, in those times, in the mid-90s, there were two government ministers in particular, um, um, Philip Burden, who was a trade minister, um, and he's a, a Christchurch MP and, and uh-huh. resident, and Don McKinnon, who was foreign minister, and they were traveling up to Asia more and more um, to support companies and sign free trade agreements and engage with Asia. And they could see the growth trajectory that Asia was on, and they could see that uh, the opportunities for New Zealand being in the region were just going to get more and more. And then they would come home, and I I think felt that um, New Zealand was somehow a bit Mm flat-footed, that we weren't really preparing ourselves uh, to grasp these opportunities and to really engage, and that we were going to miss out Mm -hmm. if we didn't somehow strengthen our capacity and our knowledge um, and our networks. And so that's uh, why the foundation Mm -hmm. came about. And so um, our role really is to gear up New Zealanders with that knowledge and understanding and, and contacts and, and overall confidence and curiosity, I guess, yeah. that don't put Asia in the too hard basket, mm-hmm. um, give it a go. And if we can get uh, all of us to that level of confidence um, where, where we don't feel worried, uh, then that, that will be of huge benefit to New Zealand going forward economically and socially and in, in many other ways as well. Absolutely. Looks like they had a really good uh, foresight um, because now we're, we're one of the, well, Asia is one of the biggest trading partners, if I'm not wrong. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, in some ways, it's the, the question then becomes, well, why do we still exist? Because you're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 11 of our top 15 trading partners are, are Asian countries uh, and markets. Um biggest source of international tourists pre-COVID mm-hmm. and also students. Exactly. 15% of New Zealanders identify as being Asian oh, these days. And so yeah. why why are we still needed? Uh, <laughs> surely everyone's got it now. And in fact, yeah. the original name for our organization was Asia 2000. And I think the, it's a bit of a sci-fi name, but I think yeah. the, the feeling was that um, it would only take a few years for us to get up to speed and, and then we'd, we'd be set. But I think um, a few things have uh, ensured our, our continued work. The, the first is that Asia is evolving so rapidly uh, mm-hmm. that it's hard to keep up sometimes. Um, and there's, there's always something new to learn. Also, it's such a vast uh, region yeah. that you yeah. may get to know Singapore or India mm-hmm. or South Korea, but you may know nothing about Vietnam or, or Mongolia or, or, or Sri Lanka. <laughs> So, you know, just just continuing to explore the diversity of Asia and what that means for for New Zealand um, is super important. Right. Alistair, now, could you please tell us about the foundation and what does the foundation actually offer Mm. to New Zealanders? Sure. Well, we we base our, our kaupapa, I guess, on research that we do every year that shows that um, if we ask New Zealanders now which which regions of the world are most important for New Zealand's future, mm-hmm. these days Asia comes out at number two. Aus- Australia is still number one, uh-huh. and then Asia is recognised as the next most important region, and then the, the others follow. When we flip it around and say, how confident do you feel? What, how much do you think you know about these different regions of the world? Mm-hmm. Asia performs really poorly. Mm-hmm. So we have uh, Australia, then we have North America, we have Europe, we have the UK. Yeah. It, it, actually, it's a long time before you get right. to Asia. So that shows us... It's a lot of Western countries compared to yeah, sort of non-Western. E- exactly. And, and, right. and why is that? Which is a, an interesting one. So what we do is uh, try to, um, I, I guess, give New Zealanders experiences and mm-hmm. knowledge and exposure to Asia. Uh, and so that they feel that they do know um, enough uh, that they can engage confidently in future. 
So we do that through nine core programs, mm -hmm. and they're all designed to touch different parts of the community. Um, but essentially, you, you can engage with us from primary school level right, right the way through to being the CEO of, of a large company. Okay. Um, and in no particular order, we, we start off with an education program that is focused on schools, mm -hmm. equipping uh, teachers to teach about Asia confidently, and we take them up to Asia for experience tours and that kind of thing, but also providing materials that they can use in the classroom. We can send experts or, or performers into mm -hmm. schools um, to give uh, the students that, that positive experience of Asia as well. Okay. Then moving on through to university, um, we offer business internships, uh, which mm -hmm. are very popular for graduate level Great. Kiwis that, that maybe uh, want to go off over the summer holidays and, and intern in the Philippines uh, or in Hong Kong or in, in Mumbai. Right. Many different sectors and, mm -hmm. and um, about, uh, I think, probably almost 20 different countries. Okay. We then have an entrepreneurship program to introduce entrepreneurs mm -hmm. to, to cutting-edge developments in Asia. Um, we have a leadership development program for around 400 New Zealanders who are not necessarily expert in Asia, but they, they understand that they need to become so. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're also in many, many different sectors and all around mm -hmm. the country. And increasingly, they're based overseas. Mm -hmm. um, and we offer them a mix of orthodox leadership development um, opportunities, but also a travel grant program so that they can visit Asia. I, I should say all of this is, is kind of um, summarising our, our normal <laughs> uh, suite of programs, not not right, right now, but yeah. uh, they will yes. come back and, yeah. and we're confident Definitely. about that. And we'll yeah. talk about COVID a little bit, I think, in, in the minute. Um, we also have a media program and that's designed to equip journalists mm -hmm. with knowledge and understanding and information to do their job. We have a new sports program, which recognises mm. uh, the strength of using sporting yeah. links um, okay. to increase your understanding of, of different places and different cultures. Uh, we have a, a really diverse arts program, and the aim of that is to bring contemporary Asian art into New Zealand so that New mm -hmm. Zealanders can experience it, and through that to understand yeah. what Asia is all about these days, you know, to get away from the cliches yes. of, uh, say, you know, China just being lion dancing or, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, so yep. on, and, and bring in a, a really cutting-edge stand-up comedian or something like that. Okay. We also, yeah. uh, through that program in the early days, we established the Lantern Festivals, which have become very, very popular in Auckland and Christchurch. And that was an attempt. You know, the, the communities in, in those places were um, doing their own thing at Lunar New Year, for example. Mm -hmm. Yes. But Kiwis weren't getting a window into that. No. And yeah. so we helped to, uh, I, I guess, bring, bring those everybody. things out into the mainstream. And, and yeah. now it has become a really important part of the annual calendar in, yes. in those cities. True. So um, I might have missed a... Oh, yes, and we have a research program. <laughs> um, we conduct research on, on different aspects of New Zealand's relations with Asia and... New Zealanders' perceptions of Asia. Mm -hmm. And we also run Track 2 Dialogues, which is um, tr Track 2, Track 1 is the difference between government-to-government -government discussions at Track mm -hmm. 1, and Track 2 is sort of non-government actors who talk about yep. the same issues that governments discuss <laughs> but do it at their level, and that can often be franker, more open, mm -hmm. um, yeah. give you a real insight in, into what those countries are really thinking about about a topic. So uh, yeah, very diverse, very broad, um, mm. yeah, broad um, programs all, all across all the sectors and across all the mediums, I guess. Um, so, if you can also tell us, you know, how each of these um, individual areas work, and how can our listeners actually tap into these programs? Sure. Well, there's a there's a lot to go into. Um, I think to start with a with a really simple answer, the very best thing to do is to visit our website, which mm -hmm. which has which got is. a really good breakdown of what yeah. we do and how to apply and that kind of thing. So that's um, Asia NZ A S I A N Z dot O R G dot N Z. Okay. Uh, essentially, they're all run along slightly different lines. Uh, so I might give a couple of examples. Um, the uh, internships that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, we we promote those online. Um, 
tends to be in the second half of each year. We go around the universities. Uh, right. We've started also visiting the polytechnics in the South Island. Oh, nice. Uh, so through the careers office, for example, you, you um, can connect with the, with the opportunity to apply. Mm-hmm. Uh, that program and, and our leadership network program, our entrepreneurship program, they're all competitive application processes. Oh. There, there are criteria for each program, but the, the fundamental one is we are funded by government to equip New Zealanders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the focus is, is on New Zealand um, citizens applying for these opportunities. I see. Um, and then, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a selection process, um, okay. interviews in most cases, um, and, then, and, and then the opportunity flows. Um, with research, for example, all of our research is pub- published online mm-hmm. uh, on the website. Um, and, yeah, you, you can scroll down and access that free of charge. Okay, mm-hmm. that's great. So for these um, entrepreneurship and in the internships, how long are they for? Or does it depend from country to country? And Not so much country to country, but definitely the programs. So we run uh, for the entrepreneurship program or the teacher experiences where we take groups of teachers up into the region. Um, they're typically around 10 to 14 days. It's It's really designed to turn a light bulb on and and just yeah. uh, stimulate curiosity um, mm-hmm. and inspire. Uh, so we do that. We, yeah. we would normally uh, just focus on one market or one country at a time, mm-hmm. uh, but it's very carefully curated. It's it's not sightseeing. Yeah. Uh, so for a teacher <laughs> program, uh, one we were, we were planning for last year, which has had to be postponed, was, was to Malaysia so that um, the teachers could um, uh, experience a, a Muslim education system, mm-hmm. uh, which is helpful in, in two ways. They, they can teach about different faiths and different cultures when they return, but also increasingly um, there are students from many different faiths and many different backgrounds in classrooms in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And so in knowing things that you, you should uh, bear in mind when when teaching Certainly. other faiths and other cultures is really mm-hmm. important. So we would do that. Um, we we of course you know you go to a night market. You you, you have a chance to experience uh, and really taste and smell and touch the culture where you're going. That's really our strength. Yeah. Uh, and ditto with the entrepreneurship program um, up to one particular market, but a real chance there to connect with entrepreneurs from that market mm-hmm. and to have an exchange of ideas, um, mm. to visit, uh, you know, it could be a research institute or a factory or an incubator. Mm-hmm. A- and again, just just really firsthand see all the exciting things that are going um, on in those dynamic places. We, we don't um, aim for deal flow from those visits. It's, that's right. not our KPI. Mm-hmm. Um, Although we we find it often happens as a byproduct of what we do, just what, what organically, really, yeah, what we really do is is just sort of light the fire. Mm-hmm. And if an entrepreneur comes back from our trip and feels they want to take the next step and explore it in more detail, we would probably refer them on to say New Zealand Trade and Enterprise, mm-hmm. um, or Export New Zealand, or other organisations that can then really assist them. Yeah. with some stronger commercial advice uh, on how to get into those markets or find their partners. Okay, well, I'll start off. Uh, Canterbury Employees Chamber of Commerce has been gosh, around for many, many years. Um, They provide specialist advice to businesses in the Canterbury area, um, specifically around HR support, um, health and safety. Um, We're we're talking a lot about redundancies and restructurings at the moment. Um, Membership also gives you access to networking events and um, we run some amazing training courses on a, on a full range of business, um, business-related topics. Um, the COVID help desk itself is a fully funded um, service that's available to all New Zealand businesses. Um, it can help businesses get specific advice to support um, 
business owner with people challenges that include things like staffing, um, employee, employee wellness and health and safety. Um, we also go out and find stuff um, that the government's doing. Um, we signpost to government business support, including things like the wage subsidy, um, business mentors and funded subsidised advisory support. And um, we've also provided advice on what the various levels mean to, to business, you know, how to operate at level three, how to operate at level one, um, and just general business advice um, on what to do now. Um, so any South Island business can call us on 0800 50 50 96. I'll say that again, 0800 50 50 96. Um, and um, you'll get to speak with one of our specialist business advisors. Okay. Thanks so much for that. And Amanda, tell us about what you do. Well, I'm um, one of four executive directors of the career development company. And um, essentially our work is around uh, career counseling. So mm -hmm. whereas Bridget focuses on business, which is fantastic, we focus on the individual. And we also work with organizations uh, around uh, career um, of the employees. And so a lot of our work is face-to-face -face, mm -hmm. um, as well as um, online work as well around uh, counseling, coaching, uh, supervision, uh, and essentially courageous career conversations, um, especially now post-COVID, uh, we seem to be getting a lot of the um, counselling work around uh, career navigation. So um, we uh, came together, we're a group of four, we have two of my colleagues in Auckland, one in Wellington and myself here in Christchurch, and we, we had our own practices and some of us still do. Uh, we came together as we were volunteering for our association, the Career Development Association of New Zealand, looking at the professional standards um, of career uh, development practitioners in New Zealand. So it was a great way. We realized that we work so well together. Why don't we just join? And we, we have done that. And um, it's been a really good, good journey. We were able to actually bring our really strong skills together. So uh, people can find us on our website, um, www.thecdc.nz, um, or contact me. I'm sure we'll have our details at the end, Razi. Okay, sure. Thank you so much. And it's great to have you know, two you know, different perspectives um, for this show today. So thank you so much for joining. Um, now, obviously, COVID-19 has brought some challenges to our economy. Uh, what is your uh, observation of the employment situation, uh, Bridget? Well, I guess um, you know the, the numbers are the numbers don't lie. Um, I had a quick look at the Christchurch New Zealand website um, <laughs> yesterday, just <laughs> and um, the job seeker supports are up forty one percent. So there's a lot more people receiving um, the, the, those benefits. Um, we've got some people taking up opportunities for further education. Um, and, but it's also impacted different across different sectors, such as those working particularly in hospitality and, and in tourism. Mm -hmm. um, I think what's really interesting, though, is that the Christchurch economy is recovering better than the rest of the country, um, or than the rest of the average country, sorry, and that's driven predominantly by manufacturing. Uh, we've got a really strong manufacturing base here, and um, that's, that's still ticking along, which is... Um, which is quite a, a very positive thing. Um, many of the businesses we're speaking to as well, um, we're, we're doing a series of outbound calls now, um, are telling us that things aren't as bad as they thought they'd be. So <laughs> yeah, okay. um, we'll, yeah. we'll take some positives from yeah. those comments. Right, uh, that's, that's quite positive to hear. Um, what have you observed, um, um, Amanda? So, so from my perspective, mm -hmm. I'll just talk from the, um, the individual's uh, point of view. Mm -hmm. And really, our clients are, are really affected. I guess the impact is threefold. So um, we often just think about uh, jobs and career, jobs, mm -hmm. uh, job losses. Um, Bridget, you were just talking about the, you know, the wage subsidy. And um, we were talking about 41% uh, you know, job losses uh, and have taken up those, those subsidies as well. But essentially, when we're talking to individuals, the impact is on well-being. 
So we talk, when we talk about well-being, um, we're talking about financial well-being. So what is the immediate impact? Right mm -hmm. now, I need to do this. Um, I need money for my family. We need to live. Mm -hmm. uh, but also it has impacted the long-term uh, plans around uh, finance. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, my plans of uh, saving is now being brought forward. I'm having to use that to, to live day to day. Uh, because we don't have um, a role, we've lost our job. The other part of that is uh, personal, uh, the personal well-being, health, how that impacts the mindset, and the stories we continue to tell each other, and whether that's um, or tell ourselves uh, around career, around jobs, around how COVID is impacting, and that sense of um, of hopelessness to hopefulness to the media emphasizing the, you know, the hope, hope, it's all going to work out, um, but is that reasonable? So I often talk to clients about the, what is reasonable hope and what can we do to enable that? And then we talk about um, the impact on uh, career well-being and that whole issue around career identity. So these job losses are right across the board. I have been this, and now who am I? So we talk a lot around the conversations um, around um, identity and how that impacts. And then obviously um, there are the good news stories. And I'm glad you brought that up, Bridget, was that there are good news stories. There are people, you know, um, there are people spending money. There are new jobs that have, that have you know, uh, come about as a result of, of this as well. So yes, tourism and hospitality have been impacted, but there are other things coming out of that also businesses are shifting the way um, they uh, recruit people and what that looks like. So that's an interesting uh, shift as well. I'd love to hear your opinion on how businesses are doing in that space, Bridget. Uh, and then also just with the various um, support mechanisms from the government, that has mm -hmm. helped people a little. Um, but we're just talking about how, how is this impacting, you know, in three months time, years times, you know, and uh, so that's an interesting one um, conversation that we've had. As yes, the the support's there now, but is it how long lasting is that? And then what? Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that's the big question, isn't it? Um, mm. That you know we've had this wage subsidy for some time, and now that support is going to go away. And uh, what we are going to face in the future, and how businesses and the employees are going to deal with those things. Um, mm. And you know this is also made us basically work from home. And some people are thinking, hmm, you know, if certain things can be done from home, might as well become an independent uh, contractor rather being employed and, you know, be, mm. be, you know, subjected to those certain working hours in, in offices. Um, so good to get to those uh, two perspectives from you. Um, we're gonna take a quick break and uh, we'll come back and discuss some of the challenges that we're gonna face in the future. back to the show. Before the break, we were talking to Bridget and Amanda about the observation of the employment situation post-COVID-19. I want to now ask you both, um, how do we address these challenges that we are going to face in the future? Um, I'll start with you, Amanda. Hmm. Hmm. So again, I, I love the threes, it seems. I think it's a system issue. And so the whole system, so we're all involved in in the solution or how to address it or how to check into the challenges. And so from an individual's point of view, I think it's really, really important now when we are sitting in a situation where, you know, we are no longer this person or this in the workplace that we were, you know, I don't have this title, this job title anymore. I, I am what? So it's really going right back down to um, looking at self. So it's that reflection on me, who am I? What are my skills? What do I have to offer? You know, mm -hmm. what are those portable skills I can take from one context to another? And uh, so a, a lot of work needs to happen in that space for us as individuals. Um, and just to know that uh, those there are skills that you can take across. And a lot of individuals I speak to don't know this. So I did this, I did this, I did this, and I did this. 
you know. Mm, way and, myopic view. Yeah. Yeah. And it was very interesting. Um, Australia, the the uh, I think it's fun, Foundation for Youth in Australia, um, had this. Uh, uh, it was a document or a report around looking at skills in clusters. TEC, the Tertiary Education Commission, also then um, decided to do a similar uh, report in, in New Zealand. And it really was looking at what are the skills clusters in New Zealand? What is it that people want? What is it that um, organizations are needing? What are they advertising? What is our big data telling us about work and employability in New Zealand? And from that, they, um, they came out with six clusters of, of port, well, I'll call it portable skills. They didn't call it that, but uh, six clusters of skills. And I will read it out over here. It is um, really inventors, your organizers, your operators, your healers, engagers, and crafters. And there was a whole lot of work put around what each and every one of those skills clusters actually mean in terms of the transferable skills, the formal skills that are required. So it's a really good piece of work. And interesting to me was that work was done in August 2018. And if I reflect right now and uh, with, um, with individuals as they are really grappling about how to actually present myself to an employer, we, we can go back to those. Where are you situated? What skills mm -hmm. do you have within that cluster? How can you actually prove that? So how can you evidence that you've got those skills? Because previously, pre-COVID, you'd probably, you know, be okay to just explain, you know, this was my job, these, this is what I did, and perhaps these are some of the highlights to present yourself. Really goes roundabout now in reframing that um, story about yourself into your key skills that you can take across contexts, especially if you're in tourism and having to move elsewhere. What is it that you did in tourism that you can go across? So that's one of the ways I think... Um, individuals uh, can reframe and, and show that shift. Obviously looking at the labor market as well, just what is what are the changes? So it's a lot of work on behalf of ourselves, you know, to, yeah. to stand in this uh, uh, new world. Organizations, uh, Bridget, you've, you've touched on a little bit of that, but it's also how organizations um, recruit now. What are the uh, procurement methodologies now in this new world? Are they still focused on the traditional style of recruitment or are they going to be looking differently at how um, they procure people? What are they looking at for potential employees? There's such a pool. And then obviously, um, if we look at government at a, at, a, at a greater level and all the agencies and the support mechanisms that they are then um, for individuals and for organizations, We've seen a lot of that support, uh, you know, through COVID, which is really fantastic. But also the latest um, work uh, through the Tertiary Education Commission is that finally, you know, that just recognizing that prof professional career development conversations are important and accessibility to that is also important. And um, so uh, right now, actually, fresh off, fresh off the um the boat um, is last last week they launched uh, free career advice right across mm -hmm. New, Ze New Zealand. So it's either online or at pop-up stations. And it's so exciting because each individual gets um, an hour and a half of free career advice. What is your um, experience now, Amanda, from uh, employees' point of view? Um, do, do you feel that employees are more trusting their employers and you know giving a bit more uh, to them because you know the, the employers have become a bit flexible with them and not micromanaging yeah I, I, I just just as Bridget was saying I think it's just really employer dependent so um, depending on the situation depending on the type of work um, mm -hmm. not all people could work from home you mm -hmm. know when you've got a hands-on uh, workforce where you're outdoors uh, you know, the contingencies there were very different to office-based type work where it was easier yeah. to transport the laptop or the computer to a home. So uh, it was very interesting. I have um, a friend up in Auckland uh, who runs a building business, and they mm -hmm. really had to think and work really carefully about how they were going to um, run mm -hmm. their business and run it differently um, in terms of, you know, the spacing when you're doing a building, how does that work? Uh, the face masks, the, the health checks, and so it, it is definitely uh, business dependent. 
But there is more of a trust now. It was such an interesting one conversation was prior to this, you know, we had to campaign for working from home. And um, and now you had to. So, mm. and, it, and um, you know, in a lot of cases, it's, it's true that it has worked and the productivity um, was the same or even better. So uh, my husband uh, wanted to go to Angkor Wat. Angkor Wat's one of the 10 wonders of the world. It's a beautiful um, temples in, mm-hmm. um, in the middle of Cambodia. So we booked a tour. So we were doing Vietnam, Cambodia, and a bit of Thailand. We were really busy. I was busy as a social worker. He was busy working. So I didn't really take the time to learn or understand where I was going. So what happened was we turned up in Cambodia and I just, I just loved Cambodia. I loved the place. I loved the energy. I loved the feel. I loved the people. Um, but sadly, um, what happened is along the tour, I learned of Cambodia's history. So Cambodia used to be the, the rice bowl, the pearl of Asia. It was doing really well, hence having Angkor Wat. Um, but the, what's commonly known as the Vietnam War decimated Cambodia. Um, and they had more bombs dropped on them um, during that war than all of World War Two. So, um, yeah, they were really decimated. So what happened was along came uh, a Kumai man, a Cambodian man, uh, Pol Pot, and he came along and he said, it's okay, everybody, I'm here, I'm going to take charge, and I'm going to bring this country back out of this. Uh, um, But sadly, that was far from the truth. Mm -hmm. Um, He basically turned Cambodia into a farm. What that means is if you were educated, mm-hmm. uh, if you had glasses, if your hands weren't calloused, um, you were a threat to the regime, you were taken to uh, places like S21, which was a, a high school that they turned into a prison, essentially, um, um, and you were tortured and killed. If you, if you were a farmer or you were a labourer, basically you were then pushed out. Literally, people were pushed out of the cities into the country to grow rice and produce. Um, right. Most people, uh, if you weren't murdered, you basically died of starvation. Oh. Uh, so Cambodia um, went from being, you know, a country that was really thriving to being completely decimated. So it was a really, really hard thing for a little Pakeha girl from New Zealand to <laughs> see, you know, mm-hmm. and it was, it was devastating. Um, and it was it was hard to comprehend that in my lifetime that this had happened. Um, so uh, I was kind of, you know, all of that was swirling around. And then on this particular day, what happened is we were on what they call the bamboo train, which is a railway line they can't use anymore. So the locals make their own bamboo trains. Oh, um, okay. And, and you yeah, can actually so the, ride on it? Yeah, yeah. They literally oh. make bamboo platforms. They put a motor down and some wheels oh. and they go along and, if you come across someone coming the other way, it's based on like, if you've got a whole heap of people on yours, you get off. So the person with a whole heap of, you know, produce on theirs can keep going or, uh-huh. or, you know, if it's two lots of people, the person with the most people can keep going and you've got to take your train off and then put it back on once they've gone past. And I was, wow. I'm from the country. I'm a little country girl. And so I love the ingenuity of that. You know, we had to do that. We, we made do with what we had around us. Mm-hmm. So I was marveling that, in that. That exciting. Oh, it's amazing. It's really a place to go. That It's such an experience. And then, yeah. so here I was marveling at this, and then we rolled up at a stop, and there was a lady standing there waiting for us tourists to come and get our cold drinks because, of course, it's tropical and hot. Oh, yeah. And she had each end of a croma tied to her handlebars, and her child was sitting in it. And I looked at that. I took a photo, and I just thought, you know what? This is actually something I can do. So wow, I found out. Yep, I took that photo and I went. This is something I could do because it's so hard to see, mm. you know, suffering and pain and corruption and poverty, and you know, often you just you feel lost and you don't know what you can do about it. But in that that very moment, I took that photo and I thought, you know what, I could do something about this. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I I didn't do it straight away. I, I bought a Kramar and I took it home and I loved it. And, thought about it and, you know, had a couple of kids and sat at home and thought about it a lot because you've got a lot of thinking time when you've got kids. And (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and um, and so I thought, you know what, I want to do something about this. And I'm on this Facebook group called Natural Parenting Canterbury, and a lady in it said, "Oh, I'm going to Cambodia," and I said, "Oh, oh, oh, I want, I want to find a village of weavers." And she was like, "Oh, I can't help you with that, but I will introduce you to a friend of mine who's Cambodian and lives in the capital, Phnom Penh." And so on Facebook, she said, mm-hmm. hey, Rebecca, this is Nita. Hey, Nita, this is Rebecca. And she introduced us. And to this day, that was um, three or four years ago now, we still have not met in person. But oh, I wow. said, hey, it's I want to start like a, a pen pal. Yeah. <laughs> the beauty of social media. Um, but of course, I've been a social worker. So my profile on social media was very, I basically didn't have one because I tried to, you know, keep quite private. Um, whereas she had a lot to see. So I could look at her and go, okay, right. She's legit. She's an actual person. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas she put a lot of trust in a girl from, you know, the bottom of the world saying, Hey, I want to buy Krama and mm-hmm. I want to make a difference. And yeah. so she went around a whole heap of different, um, groups of weavers and found, uh, the ones that we settled upon found these amazing weavers who do, who make hand loom Krama in a village just outside of Phnom Penh. And they make the most amazing, amazing kruma. Like um, people yes. from Cambodia say, oh, I've never seen them this good. So Nita went and um, negotiated a price. Obviously, locals negotiating a price is always better. Um, True. And yes. um, she came back to me and she said, right, this is what they want per kruma. And I was like, Nita, that's ridiculous. We can't pay them that. Let's double it. And <laughs> since then, we've upped it again. Um uh-huh. And that's my goal uh, is to pay them more and more and more. But um, so, so we did that. And then I said, well, what are we going to do for them? What can we do for the village? So we started a thing called the village fund. So the idea mm-hmm. is that every time we buy a Kruma or a Weaver, we put one US dollar into the village fund. Okay. And when that banks up, we let them know that there's a bit of money in it. And, and based on the UN SDGs, they're allowed to choose what they want to do with it. So every single time they've said to us, we want doctors, we want medical team. So that's, that's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's what we do with that. So the lady, Nita and I, Nita, you know, Nita doesn't live in a village anymore. She lives in a city. She mm-hmm. put herself through university, got an MBA. She doesn't know what these ladies need either. So it's always their choice and negotiated with Nita. Right. Um, and, and I just have, you know, have the fun sitting there and whatever they tell me to do, I do it. So, so. It's, it's basically just upon them to decide, you know, what needs they need to fulfill. Y- yeah. You've this is the thing the- is neither of us are arrogant enough to assume we know what they need. Mm. They know what they need. And, and like I say, every time they say we want to, we want doctors. So it's a beautiful day because what happens is everyone in the village comes out. Nita usually, we send some extra money over and, you know, Nita makes sure everyone's fed and, you know, the the doctors come out with heaps of cheers. So everyone in the village catches up for the day, which is really beautiful. Okay. And we can't always see everyone, so there has to be a list. And so the weavers decide who goes on that list. I see. Now these villages, all of them weave or just there are a few weavers who basically um, are doing this sort of, you know, a social enterprise at their end and then deciding, okay, yeah, let's do good for the rest of our village. Yes. Yeah. So, so they could have negotiated with us and said, no, no, just give us that extra dollar. Mm -hmm. Um, But that is the, most of them tell us that their favorite thing about trading with us is the village fund. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So how many times have you been back? <laughs> I haven't. I haven't been okay. back. Oh, it's mad. Oh, I know. People are like, how many times a year do you go? I've got, oh. obviously, got young children. Yes, and, oh, that makes it um, true. And I, I don't like the idea of going without them, and I didn't feel they were ready to go. And actually, mm-hmm. you know what, Razi, the thing for me is I'd have to justify that for our business mm. to spend that money. True. And yes. and I actually, you know, I, I kind of, now I go, well, how many village, you know, how many doctor's trips would me going over um, cost? Sponsor, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I would rather spend that money on more village trips. Nita is amazing mm-hmm. and I completely trust her and um, she does a great job. So although I will eventually go and had thought about going this year, but COVID obviously stopped that. Well, yes, um, yeah. <laughs> To be fair, until I think I need to set myself the challenge of until I really ramp up my sales, I'm not mm-hmm. going to be allowed to go. So maybe that's, yeah, 
Maybe oh, that's, that's a bit I'll of do. motivation for yourself as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, bump up the sales. Yeah. Definitely. definitely. And at least till we so. can't go anywhere, um, you know, that extra extra sales money can go back to the village and uh, exactly help the, help the village a bit more. Exactly. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So oh, that's, that's um, fascinating. So how long ago did you start Krama and Co? Uh, so I started it. So Ruby's about <laughs> 10, seven and she was three. So I kind of, um, so four years ago, but I'd kind of been thinking about it quite a bit and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of rattling it around in my head and um, how to do it. But for me, I think the interesting thing is um, I thought that because I was a social worker, I wouldn't know how to run a business or a social enterprise, mm. but actually it made yeah. me extremely well equipped to run a social enterprise because my decisions um, have, have a foundation to them. So the, um, you, you know, not everyone knows about the UN sustainable development goals, you know, or, mm-hmm. you know, I learned about community development. So what I know is that, I have to be careful with every decision I make and that generally I need to let the weavers make the decisions because that will, that will have, at least they have a a say, but also like, for instance, I would really love to source the cotton that they weave so that I can say Mm -hmm. where it came from, uh, which is really, really important if we're looking at ethical fashion, but Mm, the weavers, the weavers want to source their own cotton and the thing is, I will be doing somebody out of uh, trade if I yeah. say I'm going to source the cotton. So Nita went out. She had a conversation. Yeah. She said, how do you feel about us sourcing the cotton? And they said, no, we don't want to do that. We're not prepared to do that. So we respect the weaver's decisions over most things. Obviously, from this perspective, um, Nita has to understand um, my, you know, my legal obligations you know, to IRD and from a business perspective, oh, but most of the time decisions are made actually in Cambodia by Nita and the ladies. Sure. Sure. Now mm. that that's a fascinating story. Um, I think we're just going to take a little break and then come back and um, ask you some more questions. Sounds good. <laughs> okay. And welcome back. We've been talking with Rebecca. And uh, so Rebecca, can you tell us, you know, um, how did you, I mean, come to know about social enterprises? Obviously, you've been to Cambodia and you came back and then obviously you wanted to do something. So how did it all start? And, you know, how did you choose to actually do it through a social enterprise? Uh, Yeah, so obviously I could see that I had a product. Um, So in some ways it really lent itself to being a business. Um, but in other ways, I could see that I wanted to do something charitable. I wanted to do something positive. But, um, and, uh, you know, I've worked for charities. There's space. We need charities in this world. But I think that if you don't have to be a charity, that's a really good thing. So mm-hmm. um, I started looking around and I happened across two really amazing people that completely um, helped me set my path. One of them was Stephen Moe, who is a lawyer from Christchurch from Parry Field. Mm-hmm. He was writing a book at the time, Social Enterprise in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And he was really kind. He said to me, hey, do you want to sit down for, for half an hour and just discuss what you're setting up so that you can get an idea of what you want to be doing? Mm-hmm. So that was really good because he, we, I was able to say, you know, what my intention was and he was able to say, well, you know, there's, there's four charitable purposes in New Zealand and um, in some ways I didn't fit any of them anyway because I wanted all my money to go back to Cambodia. Um, And so when we kind of peeled it back and part of what I do is about education. So that's going to high schools and schools and different places talking about Cambodia and talking about Krumah. So in a way, if I wanted to, I could become a charity from an education perspective. Right. But again, I want all my money to go back to Cambodia. So um, once we teased it out, he could really see that becoming a social enterprise, so a business for good, um, was the best option for me. Mm-hmm. The other person I sat down was with was Christine, who is my accountant from Nexia. And she was able to say to me, um, okay, well, th- this is how it would work if you were a charity. This is how it would work if you were a business. 
and and if we do this right you will be able to probably support people more if you were a business so for instance if i don't make a profit i don't pay taxes anyway and all, all that profit at the end of the year just goes to the charities i support so and right. the, the thing that i love the most about it is and the thing that really said it for me is i wanted to empower our weavers i wanted mm-hmm. to be a business i wanted to yeah. be a brand i wanted to be a beautiful brand that led with the product and so the way to do that for me was to be a business so these women are, are, are beautiful artisans that you know that they make a beautiful product that they sell to me um and as a bonus they get to support their village mm-hmm. um but it's a business arrangement and so i i really like that part of it i feel like they're more empowered in that way as well oh that's great so you're saying that you you when you have the profits in the company, then basically that profits are basically donated overseas. Yep. Yes. And that's so okay yes. according to New Zealand law. So, <laughs> well, what I did is I have two charities that I support. One is in New Zealand, which is called Home and Family, which oh, right. do Sorry. amazing work in Christchurch. But the other charity I chose was is Flame, which is a New Zealand registered charity that works in Cambodia. Oh, right. So I, I love the work of Flame. Um, mm-hmm. They they do great work in the slums of Phnom Penh, um, and they're all about education, getting children into education. Right. So um, and they've they've I mean they've really proven themselves. They're such a successful charity, um, and some of the some of the young people coming out of their programs, their mm-hmm. schools, and their academy are now doctors, sociologists, psychologists, like really amazing people are coming out. So the profit gets donated to New Zealand registered charities. Okay. So it's, and, and, the, and the, the thing for me is that it's all about supporting women. So mm-hmm. Flame was started by Sue Hanna, who's worked in, in Cambodia for probably 14, 15 years now. Wow. She has a lot of mana in, right. in Phnom Penh, in the, in the slums. Mm-hmm. She's very highly regarded and rightly so. She's done amazing work. So, for me, it wasn't about starting my own charity. It was about saying, well, if, if we've got some profits, can we support a woman who's working hard to make a difference? Mm. So that's why we chose Flame. Um, so, yeah. So at the end of the day, if all your profits get donated to charity, you can run your business quite easily. Thank you so much for listening in. I hope you've enjoyed this series and uh, this particular episode, which was the best of the uh, interviews I had done. Um, we'll look forward to uh, talking to you all again and bringing some more guests and uh, interviewing them in the future. Hopefully, I'm not sure at this point, uh, but thank you so much for listening in. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to The Common Good. This show will be broadcasted every second Friday at 11 a.m. and repeats every fourth Sunday at 1 p.m. The show has been made possible through the efforts of Lady Khadija Trust and with funding from Office of Ethnic Communities.